Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know my guest from The Rise of the Ottomans on Netflix and his book 1453 and more. My guest today is none other than Roger Crowley. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you very much, Ellen. I'm always delighted to get a chance to talk about uh, Constantinople, Istanbul. So you wrote the book 1453, and what inspired you to write it? Well, in the, in, in the early 1970s, when I was quite young, I, I went to live in Istanbul for a while, um, sort of a period of a year on and off. And I was amazed by the city, by the historical depth of the city. And I thought about this. It, was, it, it stayed in my memory and my imagination for a long time. After 9-11, uh, I'd read the one book that, that existed on the fall of Constantinople by a very famous uh, Byzantine historian, uh, English, British historian called Stephen Runciman. And I realized that r- what mattered to Runciman was that this was the tragedy was it that it was the f- end of the end of the classical world of the world of Greece and Rome and that's what mattered to him after 9-11 and we started to think in more detail you know about relations with Islam and Christianity and and so on and the long chain of events I realized that there was another way of looking at this story which was really less about the fact that the classical world had died and, and all that learning had disappeared. It was that uh, the, here was one of those uh, events and relationships uh, between the Islamic world and the Christian world that could be reconsidered and looked at again. And I think that was the basis of it. But beneath that was my love of the city, being able to walk the city, see the monuments, that were there uh, in the 15th century and are still there and to be able to inhabit the past in a certain way. Mm. And did you feel the presence of the kind of, this is a question, but did you feel the presence of the history and people that lived in the city for so long when you walked through Istanbul? Yes, absolutely, you do. I mean, you know, you can, uh, you can stand on the, on the great city walls, you can see where they were eroded by Ottoman gun, gunfire, you can go down into the underground systems where people hid. You can go into the great mother church of Hagia Sophia, uh, where, where the population uh, sheltered themselves before the final attack on the city. Um, it, it, and and you, can, you can map the pl- places and events because the street layout of, of modern Istanbul uh, of the old city it's identical with that of the byzantine city almost going right back to the time of constantine so it's very easy to connect with this past here 
I want to start with uh, my trust. There have been three previous attempts, and the only really successful attempt in Concord, Constantinople, was the Fourth Crusade. And uh, what, what may from the, and there has been two previous previous attempts by the Umayyad Caliphates and uh, his Ahmed's father. I read for the other's name, forgive me, but what, why did yeah. they fail to conquer Constantinople? What made it such unconquerable? up until this point? They didn't have the technology with uh, partially uh, it, I think. Um, Mehmet's father, Murat, actually did bring cannon to the walls of the city in the 1420s, but they didn't really do very much damage. So I, they uh, really failed on a sort of technical level they, I think, continue to be concerned about the possibility of counter-crusades. Uh, the, the, and there have been crusades at Varna in the, in the 1440s and, and an earlier one. Uh, so they, they were worried about stirring up Christian Europe, I think. Uh, and um, they really, it took the development the coherent development of, of an authority of a sultan to be able to gather a, a, a massive support that was large enough, really, to tackle the city. And it, it was obvious that with the, with the previous uh, Ottoman attempts to take the city, that they simply didn't have that. So... What was the state of the Byzantine Empire at this point? I, we talked about this before the recording, and I mentioned that they were kind of where the sick man of Europe, as the Ottomans would be in the late 18th, 18th, 19th century. Is that a correct term? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the Byzantine Empire had been in decline for hundreds of years. I mean, important points were the Fourth Crusade in 1204, which shattered uh, the city in many ways and um, deprived of a lot of trade. Um, if you go deeper back, the incursions of the, uh, of the rise of Islam really removed a lot of territory from the Byzantine Empire and then tax revenues and so on. But as we move forward from there, we have um, plague, population decline, plague the first city in europe that got the black death from the black sea decimated the population in the, in the 1340s and um moving on from there um we have civil war uh, really um the <clears throat> the emperors of uh, the, uh, of the byzantine world well, there was a huge amount of infighting between different groups really the population declines uh, probably by the time of 1453, it was down to about 90,000. It had probably been half a million uh, in, in, in the year 900 or something like that. So this is a city. And by that stage, it's lost all its land, apart from a little area around the city and the Peloponnese in Greece. Everything else is gone. So they've got few nat natural resources. Um, uh, they also find it difficult to get support from the West because of religious controversy between the Greek Orthodox Church and the Pope in Rome. So really, this is this is a, a, a state which is dying and is 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 coming to the end of its natural life. I think. Do you think they would have 
with or without Mehmed, do you think they would have faded away regardless that they would have been dying eventually? Yes, I, I think almost certainly. If Mehmed hadn't taken City, uh, probably a, another Ottoman Sultan would have come along and taken it, and most likely people to extinguish the Byzantine Empire were going to be the Ottomans, the energetic, uh, westward-moving people. So its days were numbered. It could not live forever. And I, before it does, I want to take a look at some key characters, but, but before, before we start on the battle itself, but before we do that, I want to start about the fortification of East Constantinople. And it's quite impressive. And it's... So tell me about the fortification at this time uh, of Constantinople. Yeah, it's, to a certain extent, it's geography. Think of, uh, think of Constantinople as a triangle. Two sides of water, uh, one the Golden Horn, which is a, a sort of harbour, and the other is the sea, the Sea of Marmara. At the top, there's a uh, four-mile sort of um, uh, uh, land, uh, land wall, and this land wall, uh, which was the Theodosian Wall, which was built, first built in the 15th century, was the great piece of military uh, engineering in the late medieval world, uh, a tradition going back to Greco-Roman engineering. This was a formidable obstacle. So the fortifications, uh, the, the walls, uh, four miles long, um, uh, 192 towers, three different zones, an inner wall, uh, a middle wall, an outer wall, moats, ditches, and so on. Uh, 100 feet, 30, kilom- uh, 30 meters high. Um, and nobody had the technology to crack this wall. So the, the, these walls were legendary throughout Europe. If we look back over the whole history of Byzantium, Byzantium was probably, it was, uh, besieged uh, 26 times in 1100 years. That's an average of every 40 years. The Arabs, the Persians, the Russians, the Bulgars, the Huns, Attila the Hun, they all came and they, they simply didn't have the resources to, t- to, to take this city. So its fortifications were uh, formidable. And then they have a chain in by the Golden Horn as well. So they had a chain across the mouth of the Golden Horn, yeah which prevented ships from entering the harbour. And on the other side, the Sea of Marmara, the, the currents are quite strong. They did have walls on, on the, both seaward sides, but they, they didn't re- require the same level of, of uh, fortification that the land wall did, the Theodosian, the, the, the land frontier. How effective was this chain if enemy ships wanted to enter the, enter the mm-hmm. river? Well, it was effective. Uh, it actually depended upon, on the other side of the Golden Horn was the Genoese settlement of Galata, um, as it's now called. And it really depended upon some um, cooperation from the Gen- Genoese to protect the chain, uh, which indeed they did because they had a joint interest. But it, it was extremely effective. Uh, I mean, actually, this is a common thing in, in harbours across the Mediterranean. Um, uh, the chain still exists in actually in parts of it in the museum in Istanbul, and it, it's a you know it's a formidable piece of ironwork, so it worked well. And of course, you could you could defend the the chain from ships just behind it, so so it it was it was effective. And this might be a bit 
didn't know didn't I, I, I know there's cities in Europe look at the walls and look at the fortification of Constantinople and say we should maybe do that to our city that this if we did this we can be uncomfortable as well but or was it simply the location of the city that made it so perfect that it was impregnable I think the the uh, the location was critical really um you see if you've got a city in a in the middle of the land um you've got to fortify uh everything to the same uh you know to the same degree really whereas effectively the byzantines could concentrate all their defensive efforts on their land wall and um so so I, you know i think location is very very important to 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 the city and indeed to the it was to the wealth of the city as well because it sits on the trade routes east west from mediterranean to the black sea north south from europe into um asia minor and the arab world but uh location is everything i think would you say that in in this medieval world that constantinople was has been one of the most important cities in in history because yes, of this location uh, yes absolutely i mean i uh, i mean it, this city and uh, both both its forerunners um it, it, by byzantium istanbul um because of where it is it, it makes it both uh, powerful in a sense that it controls um you know the gateway to between europe and asia but it also makes it vulnerable because um at the same time you've got pressures from both sides so it it requires that you hold quite a lot of landmass either side as well i think uh and we can see it now i think in in modern turkey trying to carve out a role itself as a, the power, a powerful figure in the middle east from its position uh you know between uh between europe and 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 asia minor and the rest of the islamic world now we got quite a few Two characters in this story that we need to grow through, and one of them, I want to start with the emperor at the time, Constantine the Eleventh. And can, can you tell me about him? Constantine was um, one of a number of sons, um, but he was the most responsible of them all. I mean, it, it has to be said that the the royal family was a feuding um, mess, really, and. At least one of his brothers had uh, sided with the Ottomans in an earlier attempt on the city. Constantinople was a soldier. We don't know as much about him, I think, as we would like to. I think really because by the time he came to power, the resources for writing, uh, you know, writing biographies and so on, probably disappeared. He was uh, a man in his late forties. He spent all his life. Um, He had a great sense of responsibility. He felt the weight of history on his shoulders, that he was um, the heir to 1100 years of uh, Byzantine imperial rule, and that it was his responsibility not to not to drop the ball, you could say, not and, and that he would fight to the last for this city. He was aware of the deep history and the inheritance and responsibility. He spent years in the Peloponnese. Trying to resist the advance of uh, the Ottomans into into uh, into into Greece, and um, he was uh, a practical man. He was uh, a strategist, um, but he didn't have 
many uh, cards to play. He didn't have a vast, vast armies. He didn't have a lot of natural resources, but he was prepared himself to go down to the last man to defend the deep history of uh, Greek civilization uh, in the city. And of course, we don't talk about uh, the, one of our main men as well, Mehmed II. And how did he, because he came to the throne quite young, but then, I, then it was taken away from it because he wanted to right away attack Constantinople. He didn't want to wait. So tell me about him. Well, it's a fascinating character, really. I mean, what you have to think about, of course, every Ottoman sultan is only partially uh, an ethnic Turk um, because the harem system, you know, slaves from outside. He was, his mother was uh, probably from... Uh, Hungary, wasn't that? Uh, no, not Hungary. Probably... Uh, Probably modern Serbia or somewhere on the on the on the coast of the Adriatic. Um, he was the a last surviving son of his father Murat, um, uh, because uh, for various reasons his other sons had either been killed or died, and um, he um, he it was, there was very little possibility that he would become sultan, but he did. Um, at the age of 12, um, he was made sultan by his father, Murat, rather surprisingly, who uh, wanted to abdicate it. And he was quite a headstrong child. Um, and um, his, under the um, management of the, the vizier, um, Halil Pasha, he made a complete mess of uh, of running the Ottoman state, uh, and there was a, a great uprising against him. He introduced uh, unorthodox uh, Muslim preachers into um, the city. The city was the capital then was Edirne um, or Adrianopolis, which is 150 miles to the west of Istanbul. And in the end, Murat had to come back again. So, so he wasn't. Um, you know, he, 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 he wasn't a popular figure. At the same time, he was very deeply influenced. He was, this, is a, this is an extremely intelligent man. He was very influenced by, he, was, he spoke Turkish, he spoke uh, Ottoman Turkish, he spoke Greek, and he probably spoke a Slavic language. And he was very influenced by uh, the figure of Alexander the Great, he had his biography read to him every day in Greek, and he saw himself, I want to see himself as being the Muslim Alexander, whereas Alexander had gone from the west to the east, he was going to go from the east to the west. So he was very, very ambitious. He becomes sultan again with the death of his father at the age of 21. What? Well, um, I would have asked before you go on, because in the series it made it seem in the Netflix series, it made it seem that he may not have had a chance to become sultan even after his father's death. Is that true? Um, not that I was aware. Uh, no, I mean, I think um, there were no other candidates for... I mean, there, were, there were always a few other uh, pretenders to the throne. Um, and one of the Byzantine techniques was to keep a pretender, a cousin or somebody, uh, yeah. up their sleeve, if you like to release him and, and, and stir up trouble. In fact, they had one in the city called Orhan at the time. It's uh, uncle, right? Uh, I, I, you probably know, better than, probably know my book better than me. I can't remember now. Yeah, I think he probably was. Um, 
but um, I don't think there was any doubt that he was going to be Felton. Um, I, I see, you know, in the Netflix series, a certain element of uh, sort of creativity, possibly, but Turkish historians may well know better than me, but as far as I could see, there was, there was no other likely contender to the throne at this time. But he was ambitious and he, and he was headstrong and he'd set his, his, his sights on taking Constantinople. Uh, this was going to provide him with credibility uh, and, um, and, it was, and this was his ambition really, to cement, probably to cement his position as Sultan by taking the final prize, what the Turks called the red apple. How did the Pashas feel when he returned to the throne, the, or specifically older Pashas? When they returned after the, his failure as a young sultan. Yeah, um, Halal Pasha, who was the main vizier, was uh, very nervous about uh, and was trying to restrain uh, Mehmet, particularly from Constantinople, uh, going for Constantinople. However, he had other Pashas who were, uh, there, there's kind of a bit of a get, uh, thing being played out here between the old Turkish aristocracy and the new, um, the new viziers who are coming in who are of Albanian or Greek origin un under the uh, Ottoman slave system. These were boys who had been captured as, uh, 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 captured as children, brought into the palace system, risen through the ranks. And these, uh, some of these other pashas, one such as Zaganos Pasha, um, were very encouraging. And Halal says, this is dangerous. If you get this wrong, you know, there will be a revolt. Um, uh, again, by uh, the uh, Ottoman troops, and this is risky. This is very risky. So there's 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 a certain amount of power play going on among the advisors around the young Sultan. But uh, Mehmed is going to do what he's going to do. So um, you know, uh, and he takes more advice, I think, from the um, those people who've got something to gain from uh, this. Um, you know, this campaign rather than Halal Pasha, who'd seen his one failure as a young young man. We're going to talk about Halal Pasha in just a moment, but before that, I want to talk about Giovanni Giustani. And I'm sorry if I say his name wrong, but how does he come into the picture? Gio Giovanni Giustani is, uh, comes from a Genoese family. Um, uh, they, they actually own an island uh, uh, called Chios, uh, or just off the coast of. Um, uh, of Asia Minor, Turkey, and Justiniani was what you might call a soldier of fortune, uh, a a kind of uh, a professional soldier, uh, mercenary, mercenary, really. Yep. Uh, but his main skill was what what they called wall fighting, effectively the defending of um, fortified places. And it seems that he came. Uh, I don't know if exactly on his own initiative, but. Um, um, Constantine promised him certain uh, territories. Uh, and so he came, comes with a, not a large force, about 700 men. It's not a big force. Genoese and various other mercenaries, typical figures of the late medieval world, um, you know, uh, weapons for hire, if you like. Um, and, um, but they, his arrival in the city is greeted with great enthusiasm, you know, that, that there, are, there is some support coming from outside. And he is going to be an instrumental figure because 
because the contest more or less is going to be not exclusively it's going to be fought along the land wall Justiniani really becomes the strategic um, director of the defenses of the city. Do you think that the battle would have been shorter without Justiniani? Um, I would think it probably would have been, yes. Uh, I think there was probably nobody uh, in the city who had that kind of depth of experience of, uh, of, of warfare and of siege management that this man had. And another, I believe he was sort of a prime minister role in this Lotus, Lotus, Notaras. Yeah. My Greek isn't that great, but it's how, and talk to me about the relationship. Did they he have a relationship with Halil, Halal Pasha and did they try to stop the war from happening? Um I'm not sure about that, looking back on it. And, and in point of fact, I can't quite remember what I said in the book now. Maybe you can tell me. Um, uh, Lucas Notaris came from an aristocratic uh, Greek family. Um, he was a soldier himself, quite a skilled soldier, um, who commanded uh, a certain sections of the walls. The, the, running through this is um, one of the m- fundamental weaknesses of Constantine's position is really around religion, because um, this is moving slightly sideways from a question, but um, uh, between the Orthodox Greeks and and the Catholics and the, the, the Pope's demand that he wouldn't really send help to uh, the city unless the Greek Orthodox submitted to the authority of the Pope. And uh, Lucas Notaris was a, a Greek Orthodox, so Constantine, for pragmatic reasons, was willing to do the deal, but uh, Lucas and Tyrus wasn't. Um, So this probably caused some little friction within the um, within the uh, the city. uh, But um, he was he was the the leading Greek Orthodox uh, authority, really, in 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 terms of uh, warfare and, and management. To be honest, I can't remember what uh, what his relationship with Halal Pasha was. I'm afraid, <laughs> so I'm going to pass over. That's that okay. One. That's okay. Uh, but one of the final characters we will have to talk about is Mother Mara, and she was from the Ottoman harem, and what he Mehmed seemed to rather look up to her. So let's tell me better her relationship with Mehmed and her role yeah, in this. Um, um, she was his mother-in-law, and. Um, I think um, you know they were they were very close. I I have no um, sense of her presence at all during this siege, uh, so it's really difficult to, to to say, you know, that she had much influence in the situation. But she undoubtedly was the mother figure that, in a way. Uh, uh, he didn't have because growing up as an Ottoman prince was a pretty chilly experience. You would be taken away from your own mother at a long, at a young age. And he was sent off to Eastern Turkey to be a governor uh, at the age of um, 10 or something with tutors and so on. So he really didn't have a family life. And I think 
she substituted this. She entered his life as as a mother, really, and and was. Yeah, he undoubtedly was, and this could, could pro probably be true of many of the Ottoman sultans. This the Ottoman system was really not designed to create. Create uh, people with loving family relationships, yeah. and um, and by all accounts, Mehmet was cool, uh, distant to people, uh, and cold by nature. And uh, she, I think, was one warm spot in his life. And this brings us to the Basilica Canon and Urban the Hungarian. Um, he does try to sell his canon, which is extraordinary piece of engineering for his time and way ahead of the times, if I may say so, because looking at the canon, it's quite gigantic and it's it's, it's huge, but in that way, it's not what you haven't, I don't think you see nothing like this in medieval Europe at this point. And tell me about Orban and his Basilica canon. Orban uh, is a Hungarian, uh, at the start of the 15th century, um, we start to see um, <clears throat> um, uh, canon founders. It comes out of a blacksmithing tradition, I think, of, of people who worked in foundries. <clears throat> Actually, how does it, you know how he got around to design this, design this canon? Um, we don't in, in detail as to where the background of this came from. There were large bombards being made across Europe. Uh, I think there's one in um, Belgium called Dula Greet or something. Uh, you know, the, these things were around. Um, uh, we, we know very little about, we know almost nothing about Orban. Orban um, realizes these are, these are hired hands. This is a man with a skill. They're mercenaries in the way that they're, they're technical mercenaries. Go to the man who's going to give you some money. Um, and being probably of Christian origin, he went first of all to Constantinople uh, to um, see Constantine. These are very, very expensive things to create. You need an awful lot of material. Uh, you, quite, you have to build a certain amount of technical infrastructure to create furnaces and so on. And Constantine simply didn't have the money. He just didn't have the money. This is, he's impoverished. Uh, the resources are not there. So he says, okay, I will, I'll go to the next possible source. And that, of course, was uh, Mehmet in Ederne. And he so looks he, at the channel and he accepts the, the deal that he does make him the channel. That's right. And so we get this extraordinary process, which is described in quite a lot of detail of, uh, of um, creating molds, clay molds, superheating uh, the metal. The, a lot of the metal for these cannon would have come from melting down the Christian bells of the Balkans. So, you know, turning uh, um, plowshares into swords if you want to reverse the, you know, the thing. Um, and the, there's an extraordinary scene where this enormous cannon, which was vast weight and uh, large enough for a man to crawl into the mouth of, um, was given a test firing outside the city of Ederne. And um, women are told to stay inside in case if they're pregnant, they might miscarry their mm -hmm. unborn children and so on. You know, it's really talked up in the 
in the chronicle account. And the test firing proves very successful. Uh, it, it travels across the, the plane for a kilometer or two, buries itself a couple of meters in the ground, and then um, they start to, to transport this thing, this mighty uh, machine towards the city walls. It is both a, uh, a practical weapon, but also a psychological, uh, there's a psychological element to this, which Mehmet was very good at deploying, really sending out the information to Constantine. This thing is coming, it will destroy your city. It takes um, something like six weeks and a vast number of men to haul this. They had to build new bridges across some of the rivers to drag this great machine to the city walls. Uh, at a speed of a, sort of a couple of kilometers a day. And, um, but at the same time, they're building a whole lot of smaller cannons as well. This is the showpiece gun, but they, they had about 70 other cannons. And this is a, a remarkable tribute to the ability of the Ottomans to embrace new technology and the resources to do so. Because what you need... Uh, to, uh, to put up any kind of continuous bombardment is a very sophisticated supply chain. It's not just getting the cannons to the walls. You have to supply gunpowder. Uh, you have to supply um, uh, cannonballs, stone cannonballs at this time of the right diameter for the, um, for the different sizes of cannons. These, uh, these cannons balls are carved on the northern shores of the Black Sea. They're put in ships uh, and then they're transported over land. So the logistical requirements to put up a continuous bombardment uh, is, uh, are formidable. And we think of the Ottomans as being very good soldiers, but they were very good uh, fighters. They were also very good at the uh, logistical management, the uh, the supply chains, um, the uh, ability to uh, make gunpowder, tra transport these things. They even had set up um, mobile forges um, uh, in uh, outside the city walls where they could recast or repair cannons. So this is um, the, the supply side of uh, gunpowder warfare in the 15th century. Is, is a remarkable from an Ottoman point of view. Any specialized cannonballs for this, or did normal cannonballs work for this cannon? Um, no, I, as far as I know, I mean, there are some of these cannonballs lying around actually in Istanbul now. Um, they, I, I, they are, I, I'm not sure geologically what they were, they came from some rock strata on the I mean, what you want is a very hard uh, material. Um, uh, this is actually very deep knowledge actually within the Islamic world because uh, in the Crusades, um, when uh, the uh, Islamic, um, uh, the Mamluk dynasty uh, destroyed the last Christian uh, stronghold of Acre in 1291, they were, they were consciously finding rocks and getting uh, that were suitably hard enough to, you really need to be able to hit the walls with something very hard. So whether these were granite, they they would have they would have sought out uh, rock strata which were very hard. So it's very sophisticated stuff going on here. Mm. 
And then they finally arise, but they have to conquer, and like you said, territory among the way as they grow up, grow on, and then it finally reaches the city wall. Does it, does it try to make an ultimatum with Constantine first, with um, the right <clears throat> wall? It was traditional uh, uh, within the Islamic uh, uh, system of siege warfare that you always sent out uh, an ambassador to say, um, we give you the chance to surrender peacefully. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I've, uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what form that took with Constantine, whether it was, and you can sail away. Um, but um, this was never going to, because of what I've said about Constantine, his determination to defend the city at all costs, this is never going to go anywhere. This was a bit of a formality sending out the, the, uh, the ritual, uh, you, you probably might have just had somebody standing in front of the wall shouting out and saying, but they probably had somebody who came in and um, said, you know, you can you can surrender peacefully or you will all be slaughtered. Um, so, but Constantine dismissed it completely. He was not going to listen to any possibility of, of negotiated surrender. In them um, and secretly hope that the that he would surrender, that they would avoid battle, bloodshed. I'm sorry? Did Nachman secretly hope that he would accept the surrender, or did he um, was hoping for bloodshed? Uh, we don't really know. I think, I mean, he, he obviously, he wanted to keep, uh, it's clear that he wanted to keep a living city, really. He didn't want this place to be destroyed. Um, and there are various points towards the end of the siege where he repeats this offer. Um, so he, it's always in his interest not to have to fight his way in. Uh, but, um, and towards the end, the, the offer was made again uh, and turned down. So I think in between the long periods of fighting, he, he hoped that he could do this without bloodshed and without damage to the city. Um, so the battle begins. So tell me about the battle itself, because it's last 53 days, which is that long, ter- long time for a battle? What, what was average siege in, for, to put it that way, in medieval world? Well, um, uh, in the Islamic tradition, um, sieges tended to be quite short. They did not try to starve people out, which indeed would have been hopeless here. And generally, what happens is you bring an awful lot of people to the siege, huge numbers of people with promises of plunder, with, um, uh, you know, uh, religious messages of fighting for the faith and so on. So you get a a lot of people, some of whom are regular soldiers, but a lot of recruits. But the people have come here for plunder and um, for, for various reasons, the Ottomans knew that you could not retain a large army outside the city walls for very long, both for reasons of, uh, of, uh, of morale, but also for reasons of hygiene. You cannot keep and su- keep supplying a large number of people, keep um, water clean, a deal with, um, you know, sewage uh, and so on. Uh, the Ottomans are very good at managing these things, but really four to five weeks is the kind of the maximum. And 
Beyond that, uh, you tend to get uh, trouble among the troops and people start to leave or, 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 or the commander's position becomes difficult. This siege actually goes on for seven weeks, and that was an unusually long time for, uh, for a siege. And I think um, it was a combination, really, of, uh, of how important this city was, how rich they thought it was, but also of, of Islamic prophecy. There was a lot of Islamic prophecy about that um, the Prophet Muhammad had prophesied the taking of this city. There's a great deal of re religious like jihadi uh, enthusiasm for this that keeps it going for seven weeks and what is the what is Constantine and their reaction when they see the basilica for the first time outside the city and the effect of the basilica well the effect of the basilica is is absolutely traumatic they've never seen anything like this and you know the shattering of of the of these great stone bullets against the walls uh, some of them passing over the walls into the city and destroying buildings inside, the roar of the cannon, the smoke, and so on. Um, this frightened people. It was, uh, and it was kind of, in some respects, because it was a very um, uh, superstitious uh, religious background to this in terms of that this could be the end of the world. This kind of played into the psychological mentality of the Byz Byzantine people that we are looking at apocalypse. Could this be the end of the world? So its psychological effect was enormous, actually, in terms of, um, in terms of uh, exposure to mass gunfire, which, uh, gunpowder weapons, which they'd never experienced before. Mm -hmm. So the psychological effect was very important, obviously, as well as the material effects of, uh, of, the, of the cannon. The basilica itself is kind of quite interesting because... Uh, Orban had obviously been working at the limits of what you could do with large cannons. And um, uh, more than one king of, uh, one of the kings of Scotland was killed by sounding too close to a cannon that exploded. Uh, and, and you see this in the, it's slightly, in the Netflix series, it's slightly overplayed because, um, <clears throat> um, but um, the basilica cracked and had to be recast. Um, and over time, it, it appears that the slightly smaller cannon working in, in teams of three, where they like a, uh, a triangle, you put, you try and position two, two shots lower down and one above to try and bring down a section of wall, were probably more effective. But um, uh, we don't know what happened to the position. There actually are some very, still very large cannons uh, in, in museums in um, uh, Istanbul of this period, so we get some idea of it, although we don't think we can see one quite as big as this. Um, but it was the ability to keep firing over a long period that does the damage, really. And I think, you know, after a period, the Basilica really, and it was, a, it was too big to be repaired on the battle, on the did, battlefield. Did they try to, after, after the war, did they try to re rebuild the Basilica and was it ever used again or was it just for this battle? We don't know. They absolutely have no idea, unfortunately. And one would love to know, you know, because this was an extraordinary, you know, iconic uh, thing. And it obviously did a lot of damage, but, but it didn't survive the whole of the siege in, as a working machine. Was it, was it effective in the sense that it did the job that it 
broke through the wall or was it wasn't it that was more for this like you said the psychological effect for the people well we can't be um we 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 can't be certain i mean it certainly did do serious damage and um Constantine did have one or two cannons, but it's interesting. They revealed that the city walls were um, were outdated because when they put them on the tops of the towers, the vibration of the cannon was such that they were starting to weaken the um, the, the towers, and therefore it was kind of one of the many reasons why these uh, you know these city walls that go back to Greek and Roman times were obsolete they're out of date um but we know that it did do you know a certain amount of damage we just don't know um uh how um you know uh yeah how long it fired for answering what happened to it afterwards my guess is that because metal is is extremely valuable they would have melted it down and used it again for other cannons that it just disappeared something that i want to talk about as well is the ottoman navy and what what was the state of the Ottoman Navy like at this point? Well, um, one of the reasons why Constantinople had been so difficult to take was that the Ottomans didn't have a navy, and it could so the city could always be resupplied by sea. But um, Mehmet, very key, clever uh, tactician, realized that you actually needed uh, a navy. And he had a lot of ships built at Gallipoli uh, by Greek um, um, by Greek shipbuilders and and manned by Greek mainly Greek sailors of about seventy oared galleys, and these sailed up towards the um, walls of Constantinople. This stunned the people of the city looking out to see because they'd never seen Ottoman ships and they um, there's a little harbour slightly up the coast where they and the idea of course was to starve the city by sea and to challenge the chain and there follows a period when um, the uh, Pope eventually did send three large sailing ships and there's a sea battle off the coast of uh, off the walls of the city watched by Mehmet on the shore and by all the population of Constantinople looking down and the ships which are arrive are high-sided sailing ships and the galleys that uh, Mehmet had are very low in the water and they were simply incapable of stopping the arriving although there are only three of these ships of of um <coughs> of making their way up to the chain. The chain is open, they're let in, the chain is closed. And this is a humiliation for Mehmet. And it's one of those moments when you can start to see the morale of the the people um, uh, starting to question whether the city could be taken. It was a very humiliating, very public failure. What does Mehmet want? He wants to get rid of that chain. He wants to get ships into the Golden Horn so that he can threaten the uh, city from uh, f- f- from the water. It would mean that the uh, Byzantines would need to withdraw more troops from the land walls because they were hardly defending the sea walls at all and put a, a, a lot more pressure on them. So he does something which is absolutely extraordinary. From the Little Harbour, which is about three kilometres up the coast, he has ships hauled over land 
over one night into the golden horn behind the chain. And this stuns the people of, of the city. This again is a very curious story, uh, much um, discussed. Um, it actually involves the creation of a trackway, which is, has to be greased, um, hauling um, the, uh, the ships, these are galleys, 70 ships, overland, uphill, down the other side, all in one night. And nobody knows, this is a great story, the subject of, of great stuff in, yeah. you know, in, uh, in Ottoman legend. Nobody knows really how this was done. It, there have been cases where this has been done before the Venetians uh, have done it. Generally, people would uh, disassemble the ships, take them apart, um, uh, and then reassemble them uh, on, on the other side. Um, so it remains a mystery. I mean, he did have access to a very large workforce. So maybe it could have been done in one day, but it remains one of those one of those strange events that there are all sorts of fantastic pieces of practical engineering going on in the siege, the cannon, the walls, uh, you know, the, these, the, uh, the supply chains uh, and this business of uh, moving these ships over land. But we don't really know uh, actually, you know, how it really worked out. I think we have to take it at face value and say, okay, maybe he did, he did have the resources to do this. I mean, he had, the size of, of the of Ottoman armies is always up for dispute. The Christians, would say, were 400,000 men there, but was probably about 80,000. But they would probably also have had a, a large number of servants, of people managing horses, and they, they could probably have Slaves, drawn on a lot of people. I'm sorry? Slaves, too, I will imagine. Uh, yes, probably slaves, yeah. Um, uh, people from... Uh, uh, from conquered um, territories, probably from, I mean, there were a large number of, um, uh, of uh, Christians in their army who were compelled to come from um, uh, the Balkans to fight. You know, it wasn't, there wasn't a choice, they had to come. Um, so uh, so they had, he had lots of manpower, so maybe he could have done it in one night. So but the, the Byzantines do have um, extraordinary weapons with which we still don't know the recipe today called Greek fire. But at this point in time, how effective were was it still effective the Greek fire at this point in time? Uh, I think it was reasonably effective. Um, it you can only, as far as I can understand it, propel Greek fire over quite a short distance. You have to be very close, and uh, going back centuries. Um, and was you know, it used in this battle of? It was used, yes, um, and uh, you had a sort of, it was a kind of a pump system, I think. Of course, you can't move it around very easily. Um, it, it, again, it was psychologically very frightening because when you, um, if it gets hold of somebody, they just burn like a candle, you know, and there are accounts from earlier um, times of people just going up and, you know, so it was extremely frightening, but but not... Perhaps they did have it. They did use it. It was one of the one of the secrets of the Greek world. Although um, I think there's evidence actually that Arabs also, um, Islamic armies also had it in the Crusading period. Um, but um, 
it, it wasn't going to make the difference, I think. Um, uh, but it was used uh, and um, they did and they did propel fire. People have to be quite close to you. They have to be storming your your ramparts before you can, you know, I don't know what. I don't know, 10 meters, you know, not 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 a big distance. What about Giussiani himself? How does how does he fight in this battle and how critical is you we talked about this before in the beginning, but what does he do to battle the Ottomans, fight the um, Ottomans? Well, he, he one of the things that happened is that as the uh, the walls collapse, sorry to collapse. And Justiniani worked out that actually, if you uh, replace stone wall with a mixture of uh, earth ramparts and wood, um, these are quite effective because it's rather like throwing a stone into mud or something. Uh, rather than um, destroying something, it sinks into the material. So, uh, so he started to he he got the civilian population to help in this, to drag up earth and, and, and timber and so on, to create, um, to create replacements for where the walls were broken. And on the top, where they had had battlements, they put uh, baskets with earth in them. And so these were quite effective defences. He worked out where the most vulnerable parts of the wall uh, were. There was a one one area in the center which you can still see actually where where the land slopes down and 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 it's uh it's strategically more difficult to defend concentrating troops in the critical points moving troops around um and then making um uh sort of sallies making little attacks out of the city walls through gates one of the main things they needed to do and one of the things that the ottomans were most thing to do was to fill in the moat, uh, the deep um, um, trench, uh, so that when their men came to the final attack, uh, they would pass over level ground rather than having to drop down into a pit and up the other side. Um, and they spent a lot of time throwing materials, even dead bodies, into the into the moat, which was dry, I think, at this point. We don't think there was any water in it, but it's still a deep ditch with deep sides and quite an obstacle for charging troops. Uh, but Justiniani led or organized little uh, attacks to go and try and clear out the moat so that it was it remained deep. So, uh, and he attended to moving people around, uh, concentrating fire where it was acquired, repairing the walls, maintaining the morale of the troops, really. They, they trusted him. This was a man who, gave the defending troops great confidence. So really he was the commander of the walls and, in, and really managing the most important part of the whole, um, of the whole defensive operation. Does it worry about payment at all? Because I, I, yeah, I want to refer to the Netflix series here because it, it yeah. seemed to me like in, 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 the, in the series it kind of seemed like you was was worried about it and they had to start melting down Christian symbols and they had to melt down silver from churches, etc., to be able to afford to pay him. Is that right? I don't know about that. Uh, I've got no evidence. I mean, I think I have to say the Netflix <laughs> series mm. does does fill in some gaps, really, that, you know, the idea that Mehmet himself was wounded by the Basilica exploding mm. and so on. Um, I've got... Uh, 
I I have no idea. I've got no. Um, Turkish historians might have evidence of that, but I think if there was evidence, it would have showed up from the Christian sources. So I don't know what. I, he'd been promised rewards of 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 land, I think, in the Peloponnese by Constantine. Whether whether he was being paid along the way, quite probably. Um, and there probably would have been. It's quite possible that in times of um, severe crisis that the uh, Byzantine population might have been prepared to melt down um, some of their religious possessions to pay people. But I've I've never seen any documentary evidence for that. And uh, Mehmedos tried sending miners to dangerous walls under the, under the get into to the city and this is this is how did they discover this that they send miners he said try to dig caves sort of into the city well um mehmet who called on all the resources of his empire and he had he got silver miners from serbia to dig these tunnels um again uh constantine was lucky that he had um a um Uh, a, uh, a mining engineer, Scottish mining engineer, it's an extraordinary story, who'd been in Germany, a man called... How, did, how did he end up in... Well, we don't places. know. It is absolutely fascinating. We don't. We absolutely don't know. Um, uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a good Scottish name. He had come from Germany. I think we're seeing, we're seeing, uh, rather like um, Orban, we're seeing technical mercenaries who have got a skill to sell, uh, traveling widely across Europe. And uh, uh, John Grant was one of those technical mercenaries who went to Germany. Um, and we, we have no idea, unfortunately, how he came to be in, uh, Const- in Constantinople. No idea. It didn't, um, it didn't matter to them who won the war. It just mattered who paid the most. Well, I think there's an element of that. Yeah, I mean, I you, I think, you know, fighting for the cause. Um, you know, there, there are an awful lot of people who are uh, for whom war or things related to it is a business, really, and we see this in the, you know, 15th century, particularly in uh, early 16th century in Italy. Um, so, unfortunately, I would love to know, and I was contacted by. There's a Scottish uh, Scottish family name, and I was contacted by the Grant clan, Scottish clan, if I could tell them anything about John Crump, but I couldn't find out anything about him, unfortunately. Um, So, um, but what he did was he he knew that when you mine under the walls, uh, there will be uh, there will be vibration, and. So what he put did was he put down buckets of water by the walls, and if they started to ripple, he knew that the walls were under were being disturbed. That's genius. Yeah, um, and um, this is probably a well-known technique because effectively mining was one of the most effective techniques for getting into cities. What what they were trying to do was actually to get into the city, as far as I could see. Uh, conventionally, it became more common to mine under the walls, um, put um, exp- explosives under there, and then blow up a bit of a wall. But they seem to be trying to actually get under the walls. So uh, Grant, um, who obviously has a team of skilled miners, uh, 
with him and um, of a certain number of them, at least, um, uh, they countermine, they dig mines uh, to meet the mines of, of Mehmet's mines under the walls. And they, and it's completely nightmarish. They break into the tunnels and the fighting in the dark it's extraordinary and pulling down the tunnels so that the, um, so the Serbian miners are suffocated under the city walls. Um, it's a kind of extraordinary. There are so many aspects to this, to this contest, really. You've got sea battles, you've got, the, um, you've got siege machines, you've got big cannons, you've got, it, it, it's, it, uh, as, as contests go, it's got everything, really, I think, in terms of, a, you know, an extraordinary event. Um, and and uh, so Mehmet's attempt to undermine the walls fails. Uh, and you know Mehmet's trying everything. You know he's dragged ships over the uh, over the Golden Horn. He's got miners. He he builds siege machines and tries to wield them up to the walls and protects them with um, leather. But siege machines are always vulnerable, and they would be particularly vulnerable to Greek fire. And that failed as well. Uh, we don't know what happened to Grant. He was probably killed in, in the final thing. He just disappears. It, it's one of, one of the many fascinating little stories within the big story that you wish we all wish we knew more about, but we don't. So how, how much battle did actually fighting that, that actually took place outside the city worlds? And who were part of... What kind of troops did Nathan send? Because there are quite a number of different troops yeah yeah and how does it is there fighting outside of the walls as well yeah well i mean he has um uh christians uh conscripted christians he has uh his crack troops uh, and on three three wings and conventionally what he did was he would send he would send in the most disposable troops who would be the christians first um and and uh, and he kept his his best troops the 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 um the professional army corps the janissaries until the end um but what the pattern was this really that um they would attack a certain section of wall intensely, bring it down, and um, try and fill in the moat, and then uh, stage an attack um, along. Uh, you know, you, you actually usually quite a narrow area. You know, ten, fifteen, twenty meters—not a big area. Um, so that there would be a rush, really. Um, and of course, these are quite easy to defend as long as you can move your men fast enough. And so we tend to see these these attacks um, uh, wherever, whenever a good section, or not, when, when a good section of wall has been taken down, you would see an attack, and they would fill in the moat as quickly as they could, and advance. And these were beaten back pretty well, actually. Um, Justiniani, uh, I think, ensured that his troops were quite mobile. They could they could be moved up and down the wall very quickly, actually. Um, it has to be said, they didn't have enough men, although there are two levels of wall, they didn't have enough men to defend the outer wall, really. So they were effectively defending the inner wall. But um, as the walls came down, then uh, or the outer wall came down, then they would be forced to, to send men into that sector to, to um, 
you know, uh, to repel an attack. So this pattern emerges, uh, collapse of wall, uh, mass attack, um, um, uh, good defense, and then the troops will withdraw. Uh, quite a lot of people would be killed, but more on the Ottoman side. But all the time, the Christian numbers are being reduced. And the one thing the Christians don't have is a large number of men. You know, they they had about 7,000, and we think the Ottomans had about 80,000, you know, although, as I say, counting crowds is very difficult. Uh, so, but all the time, of course, the number of defenders is being reduced. Um, and, um, yeah, this is... Um, uh, you know, this is uh, the loss of every Byzantine soldier is probably worth, you know, 10 Ottoman soldiers. And did the Giuseani fight outside the walls himself or do I have a tell? I don't know uh, whether he actually did. I suspect that he didn't. But, um, and, you know, I know in the Netflix series that he, he fights outside the walls, doesn't he? Um, uh, we don't know, really. I, I would think that the commander you know, it's probably not going to risk himself. Uh, you know, he may, he may have done. I, we don't know. We don't know. And there is, we have to say the Netflix series fills in a lot. We, we do not have documentary evidence, either for or against that. What about Constantine himself? How, what does he do during the siege? Does he command himself or does he let most Con- everything to... Con- Constantine uh, does command... Uh, um, uh, bodies of troops um, along the walls uh, and um, it's very much as far as we can see in the front line uh, he's there at the walls this is where it's all happening um, and so uh, he is a soldier um, although you know he really gives overall command to Justiniani but he must have had a big um, contribution to make into how um, the defences were, were being managed. Um, was the idea commander Constantine? I'm sorry? Was the idea commander himself Constantine? Yes, he was. Yeah, he was a, he was a skilled professional soldier. He was, he was um, uh, and his presence on the walls undoubtedly was very good for the morale of the troops. Your commander needs to be seen, you know, and, um, and this, this man was a skilled soldier. He was a practical man, uh, so, you know, he knew quite a bit about, um, uh, 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 he knew that actually knew a certain amount about siege warfare because he had some experience of trying to defend the Peloponnese against um, the Ottomans and involving walls. Um, so, so he would have been very much in the front line as well on, on one sec. There was one section of, of the wall that he, that he personally managed. Something that we haven't discussed, just mentioned, and I don't know if you can answer this enough, but what about the people themselves that were living in Constantinople at this point? How did they, what was the effect of the battle for them like? Well, the, the people, the ordinary people of the city. Yeah. Well, it's difficult, really, because um, many, many of the Greeks refused to participate because of this religious problem between the Catholics and the um, and the Greek Orthodox, so it was incredibly difficult for Constantine to. I mean, they they, they did contribute. We, we hear of of people, as I said, being involved in bringing up earth and timber to the walls, um, but uh, 
there was a strong element in the city that refused to cooperate, um, uh, particularly uh, around the um, the Greek uh, patriarch, whose name I've forgotten at the moment, um, who really said, uh, rather the sultan's turban than the cardinal's hat, i.e. rather, you know, um, they, they, they just loathed. Uh, and Constantine had done this deal, really, with, uh, you know, where he had personally submitted to the Pope. And this meant that the great mother church of Hagia Sophia was boycotted by the Greek uh, Orthodox population during almost... Did they feel like he betrayed them, in a sense? Yes, they did. They did. Um, And behind this, of course, lies the siege of uh, the Fourth Crusade of 1204, when, of course, Catholic uh, Venetians... uh, Western Christians came and sacked their city. So they, they've got deep history here. Uh, so it's very difficult for Constantine, really, to mobilize all the resources of the population in an effective way. He was in an incredibly difficult situation. Now, something that I haven't brought up so far, and I think it's essential to do, because he does send requests for a Venetian fleet, and it is on its way, but why why does it never arrive? And do you have a count of why 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 it doesn't come to aid? Um really because well the the papacy is not convinced by uh the submission, I think. Um the Venetians who are the people who are best placed to send a fleet, uh um uh, Venetians are always playing the game from both sides. Um, they're very, they're cautious. They say we see which way the wind blows. They're doing a lot of trade with the Ottomans. Furthermore, um, Christian Europe has memories of two disastrous crusades. The last one being at Varna. Uh, on the coast of the Black Sea in 1446, where a Christian army is completely wiped out. So it's um, extremely, uh, there's a great deal of debate. And and I think the Venetian Senate at one point voted not to send aid to the city. That, That they were realistic that this city has had it anyway. And we're not going to. The Venetians earn a, a continuous reputation, in certainly from the Pope, for not being Christians at all. Uh, Venetians said we're we're Venetians first, then Christians, um, and uh, and so really, I think two things: there wasn't quite the will, and secondly, I think they, to a certain extent, I think they didn't really understand how bad the situation was. Constantinople had been there for 1,100 years. It seemed like the eternal city, and it was almost impossible for them to believe that it wasn't there. So I think there was kind of a, an information gap, you could say, between, you know, oh, we've had these sieges before, and so on. That, and, and, and perhaps a more realistic sense that the Ottomans, taking on the Ottomans, making these long-range expeditions was always going to lead to disaster. So he finally enters the city, the Trump method, and 
who does the sense first when you, when the city gates are finally open? Well, um, I think, I mean, I think initially uh, people pour in through the walls, um, over the walls, um, and, um, and then start to make their way into the city. Um, <clears throat> it's difficult to say which troops it was. Um, was it the Janissaries? Or? Um, well, I, I think the Janissaries would have, it probably was the Janissaries actually, because when it came to the final attack, um, when uh, uh, the defenders are overwhelmed w- between the two walls, um, uh, uh, and they make their way into the city. Um, and, and of course, then they start to, to kill people. Uh, and then uh, they advance fairly quickly down the main streets um, and the people flee or they hide in houses and so on. And the defense, in, there's very little defense inside the city that collapses. And there's about said to be about 10,000 people inside Hagia Sophia, which is quite possible. It is the most enormous building, very impressive. Um, and eventually, when it's died down a bit, um, a method makes a triumphal entry through the city gates, which is the subject of a very famous 19th century painting, which used to be on the walls and probably is again on of m- many uh, Istanbul tea shops, um, um, and makes his way down into, um, into the heart of the city. So I actually want to rewind a little bit before you before we move on because just Justiani managed to escape when he see, realized the battle is lost and he is in the sources branded a coward for this. But do, would you blame him for this? And would you say he was a coward? Um, I think uh, what happened was that uh, Constantine marched all his troops between the inner and the outer walls, locked the gates behind him, and they were going to go down to the last man. Justiniani is undoubtedly very badly wounded, although nobody can actually see it. He's been hit somewhere under his breastplate. And he turns to Constantine and says, you need to give me the key to the gate. I have to go. And um, Constantine says, well, if you go, we're lost with everybody. You are the iconic figure, you know. And, and I think we must... Justiniani was probably exhausted. He'd been fighting for seven weeks. He, can you blame he, him for what he I can't, I don't think I can blame him, but of course it was the disaster. If he had stayed and just collapsed on the ground, um, this happened quite often actually. It happened at the siege of Acre in 1291 when uh, the master of the Templars was very badly wounded and everybody says, if you go, uh, the siege, uh, the defence will collapse and it did. So the I, conventionally, I think, that when your leader uh, flees, if you can put it like that, then this is the beginning of the end. Um, I don't think I would blame him personally, uh, but it, Constantine was right. This was a signal for the complete collapse. Uh, and, and he did get away and he did die 11 days later back on his home island. Um, so, um, you know, and curses are called upon him. So... I don't know whether I blame him or not. He he should have stayed, I suppose. He should have stayed. But he was a dead man, you know, obviously wasn't dead at that moment. Um, so, but it was an instrumental moment. It was. It was the moment that changed, the, the, that people gave, people gave up. 
No, I try actually while we were recording, I tried to find this speech, but Tonson and it's been stated that it may have been added later in sources of people that may not have been there under the battle. But Tonsantine had quite an epic speech according to not said it may be over saturation, but can you tell me about this speech that he has? Uh, because I I tried I can't remember it. I've seen it before, but I I tried to look it up. But uh, you tell, tell, is this, tell, um, tell me about his final is, speech. Is this the, is this um before the final attack? And it just runs in that and disappears. And he I think he has a speech that's. Uh, I don't remember this. Like I said, I don't remember the speech itself. I'm going to try to look it up. But, I mean, uh, um, the, um, but I think it's been added to later sources, perhaps, in, uh, because it was, because it was, you know, I don't, hold on, there we go. Maybe I'll find it now. Uh, final speech of Constant, Emperor Constantine. Sorry, it's just that like, I tried to find it, but I, mm. Um, uh, I mean, before the, on on the night before the. Oh yeah, here we go. Most noble leader, illustrate illustrators, tribunes, general, most courageous fellow soldiers, and loyal honest citizens. You know well that the hour has come. The enemy of our faith wishes to open, oppress us even more closely by sea and land, with all his engines and skill to attack us with the entire strength of siege force. A snake about to spew his venom, he is in a hurry to devour us like a savage lion. For this reason I am imploring you to fight like men with brave souls, as you have done from the beginning up to this day against the enemy of our fate. I hand over to you my glorious, famous, respected, noble city, the shining queen of cities of our homeland. You know well, my brothers, that we have four obligations in common, which force us to prefer death over survival. First, our faith and piety, second, our homeland. Third, the emperor anointed by the Lord, and fourth, our relatives and friends. Well, my brothers, if we must fight for one of these obligations, we will be even more liable and the command strength of all four, as you can clearly understand. If God grants victory to the impious because of our, my own sins, we will endanger our lives of our, our holy faith with Christ, and gave, which Christ gave his own blood. This is most important of all, even if one gains the entire world but loses his soul in the process that will be, it benefit. Second, we will, live, we will be deprived of such famous homeland and of our liberty. Third, our empire, renowned in the past but presently humble, low and exhausted, will be ruled, ruled by a tyrant and a, an imposed man. Fourth, we will be separated from our dearest children, wives and relatives. This wretch of a sultan has besieged our city but up to now for 57 days with all his engines and strength. He has relaxed the blockade neither day nor night. But by the grace of Christ, our Lord, who sees all things, the enemy has often been repelled up to now from our walls with shame and dishonor. 
Yet to my brothers feel no cowardice, even if small parts of our fortifications have collapsed from the explosions and engine missiles, as you can see, we made possible necessary repairs. We are placing all, all hope in the irresistible glory of God. Some have faith in our amendment, others in cavalry, might and numbers, but we believe in the name of our Lord, our Savior, and second in our arms, and strength granted to us by divine power. And now the countless hordes of the imposed will advise us against, against us according to the customs, violently, confidently, and great courage and force in order to overwhelm and wear out our few defenders with hardship. They attempt to frighten us with loud yells and inaugural battle cries. But I'm not going to read the entire speech, yeah. but it ends Wait. with something. Well, my brothers, well then, my brothers and fellow soldiers, be prepared for the morning with the grace of my strength and strength granted you by the God and with help from our Holy Trinity in which we have placed all of hope. Let's for- force the enemy to depart from here in shame. Which book does that come from? Uh, I'm not sure the sources. Yeah. Um, oh, it says here, uh, The Fall of the Byzantine Empire, a chronicle by George Frantis, 1401-1407. Right, okay. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Um, it, it is... Uh, it's quite um, a long speech, but... Yeah, it's... it's yeah. Um, the, the sources have been made complicated, but uh, it's, a liter- it's a forgery... Uh, not a modern forgery, uh, but a hundred years later, by um, uh, a man, uh, by a priest, there was a guy called George Francis, who uh, was Constantine's best friend, and um, he wrote an ac- an account. It's not very long. Um, he actually survived and ended up in a monastery in Greece, although his wife. Uh, his children were taken into the harem and, and I think they were killed. Um, and for a long time, it was thought that he uh, had written a short account and a long account. But it now appears that what you've just read <laughs> was written a hundred years later mm. by um, by uh, by a priest, uh, and it's and it's a forgery. It's not a modern forgery. It's a it's a um, uh, it's a, it's a sort of um, sixteenth. Uh, 16th century forgery so it's we unfortunately in real terms we have very very little that we know that the Constantine actually said um so so it's not it's not authentic it's It's quite uh, a long it's uh, quite a long um, read as well so I wouldn't but it, it took historians a long time to work out that this wasn't actually a real th- a, mm. a thing written by the original George Francis. Mm. Quite interesting piece of historiography, really. Yeah, and uh, Mehmed enters. Not just the Mehmed enters the city, and his awestruck. So, so how the how awestruck is he when he see Hagia Sophia for say the first time? I think he is uh, deeply moved. Really, I think. Uh, a, it is the most extraordinary building. You know, it is, I mean, it is a m- miraculous building inside. This is a building from the 6th century AD. Um, and um, uh, I, I think there's two things. I think one is that he, he, that he is 
perhaps overcome, I think, by the splendor of, of, the, of, the, of the church. Secondly, it is that he has fulfilled uh, 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 an Islamic prophecy that goes back hundreds of years, um, you know, that, that he is the, um, the man who has, uh, has, has filled, fulfilled the words of the prophet Muhammad, although the, actually a lot of those words were forgeries anyway, but that, he didn't know that. Um, um, and, and so, yeah, he, and, um, he, he, and, and yet there's a strange thing that he said um, that, you know, he climbs up onto the, on, onto the roof and he can survey the whole city. And he, there, there's almost kind of like um, a, a moment of anticlimax when he gets up there. You know how it is. Um, he remembers, um, he remembers a, a couple of lines about how spiders take over palaces, the owls hoot in, uh, in, uh, in, in castles that have been destroyed, almost as though, you know, you know how it is when you aim to do something and you do it and, 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 and it's everything that you've been wanted for and then you've done it. Uh, uh, almost like a feeling of um, emptiness. Melan melancholy, yeah. Um, uh, um, uh, involved in that. Um, um, I mean, somebody said, I'm just reading my own book here. I don't know where the um, quote comes from. It obviously came from somebody at the time. He thought of the impermanence and instability of this world and its ultimate destruction. Mm -hmm. And he can look down from there and see this great city being plundered in front of his eyes. So it's almost, it's a strange moment. He's overcome with awe and uh, achievement and then thinking, you know, um, this is this is kind of well. I've done it, and <laughs> what does it all mean? It's kind of quite a modern feeling, really. I think. I would ask about the people in after this. It was Stormcourt. Did they realize that? Oh, I guess we're not Romans anymore. I guess we're Ottomans now. Or how did um, they feel after this? Well, um, I think um, a lot of the population would march off into slavery. And there had to be a sort of repopulation, but um, he allowed the Greeks to be affairs in the city to be run by their own um, patriarch. Really, so they had a certain amount of, uh, of freedom. Um, I don't know how the Greeks of that didn't probably didn't think of themselves as, as Ottomans. They thought of themselves as Greeks. They sort of thought of themselves as Byzantines, and um, uh, and. Um, you know, I think how they identified themselves is kind of quite difficult to know. Um, the Sultan was obviously their lord and master, but as long as they behaved themselves, you know, Greek worship went on, um, uh, and, and actually a very high percentage of the population continued to be Greek well into the 19th century, you know, um, uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, they, we, we don't really know how they, I mean, they identified themselves as subjects of the Sultan, uh, but I don't oh, think he, they... He did look at himself as emperor of Rome as well, right? Kaiser and Trom, that he was a successor of the Roman Empire. Did yeah, he? yeah, he did. They were, he was terribly keen to get this title uh, as... Um, 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 
uh, uh, you know, as, as, as this was a survivor of the Roman Empire, he, the title of, of Emperor of Rome was, was very important to him. He was very into those kinds of, you know, uh, sort of fame, really, I suppose. And curiously, um, the, the Is Greek... Is he recognized as this? N- not outside of... Um, uh, they, they called European... Uh, the. Uh, the European side of of of, of the Ottoman Empire, Rome, Rome, um, but um, it was a it was a an ambition really that uh, continued to linger for a couple of hundred, well, certainly for at least a century and a half, well, a century maybe, of of successive uh, sultans wanting to actually capture Rome and be. Uh, but the title of Caesar, calling yourself Caesar, was a very important one to uh, uh, to Mehmed. How does it go on about rebuilding Constantinople after after the siege itself? I'm sorry. How does it go on about rebuilding Constantinople? Well, um, yeah, uh, I, I mean, it was it was wrecked. It wasn't totally wrecked. I think um, he sort of stopped the looting. Uh, I I don't know too much about that. I mean, I think. Uh, what we're going to see, of course, is we're going to see the whole skyline of the city change with with mosques. You know, the yeah, one of the yeah. first, first there is thing. a very famous painting where, after I don't remember, it's in the this book by Robin Cormack, as a, but I don't remember the painting and the name where this you see it as the skyline in of Istanbul, Constantinople after Mehmed has taken yeah, over the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, uh, I, yeah, I think there would have been quite large empty spaces. I mean, the city had shrunk so much under, uh, uh, with the decline of Byzantines that they were growing crops inside the walls. You know, it was, uh, it was um, uh, almost like sort of separate villages in different, different areas. Um, so, uh, there was a long, slow rebuilding process, I think, of, of um, recreating uh, the city fabric. And of course, the big one is going to come uh, after Mehmet's time, I think, um, with the building of the Topkapi Palace. And I can't remember when, you know, which was on the site of the old, um, the old uh, uh, Byzantine uh, um, Acropolis. Um, but I think it, it takes a long time, and it takes a long time to get the population back up. They had they had to encourage people, or even force people. They forcibly move people from Asia Minor to come and live in the city. Uh, so this is quite a long process, I think. And of course, a few decades later, Salim would conquer most to what we know as and make the Ottoman Empire at its height, and it would be closest to Rome, the Roman Empire, since the Roman Empire. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think the Ottomans probably reached their peak in the following century with Suleiman the Magnificent, of which um, the uh, Turks have created another... Um, uh, block mass, but blockbuster. I don't know if it's available with subtitles called uh, "The Magnificent Century" about Suleiman the Magnificent. Um, 
but um, you know the, the what what they did was they bring back to life a dying city you know this is a city that was dying with a small population a crumbling infrastructure um and so they rebuild they have to redo rebuild quite a lot of uh, you know aqueducts bringing water into the city and so on so they really bring a dying city back to life um if you want to look at it in objective terms although the I'm, greeks wouldn't like that idea of course i have to ask what business was it of the turks to change it from constantinople to istanbul well um <laughs> yeah i i th- it's interesting that istanbul is a corruption oh i think of the greek esteem polini i'm yeah which means I'm going Aethine Pauline into the city, and that became Istanbul. Uh, but actually, I think they went on calling it Constantinople for quite a long time because of the the prestige that surrounded um, their city. And I couldn't trace the point at which Istanbul becomes uh, the main um i just name. asked no, i just asked nobody's business but the turks uh, yeah yeah absolutely yes. istanbul constantinople mm. <laughs> great song but, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, it seemed to me that it wasn't istanbul officially until 1923 right okay i'm mean, you're probably right I, i don't know i don't know i may be wrong yeah, it seemed... i mean it could well be i mean the rest of europe was going on calling it constantinople mm. it may be that uh Uh, sort of Turks themselves use, you know, particularly um, people who weren't in diplomatic circles called called it um, uh, Istanbul. But it's it's one of those it's one of the many fascinating sort of multiple identities of the city. I think. Thank you so much for coming. It's been an honor to have you on this podcast. And uh, do you have anything you wish to promote? Any social media you wish to share? If uh, people want to. Um, find your work or uh no i mean i think i've got a website um i i the last book i wrote was called the accursed tower and it was about the siege which ends the crusades of acre in 1291 and it's interesting because a lot of the practices uh, that the uh, islamic armies employed at um uh, acre well those that they employed at um uh Uh, Constantinople in uh, you know 200 years later and so the, the the practice of Islamic warfare which the Ottoman, Ottomans inherited from the Islamic world was very deep and you can see the same kind of things going on the use of noise the use of Greek fire the um, uh, the the way the morale of uh, the defenders collapses when a key figure is killed um, the use of they were using giant catapults at that time rather, rather than um rather than cannons but with the same kind of problems of getting all the equipment together mining the stone the uh, the, the skills for warfare and i'm very interested in those kind of technological i'm not a, i'm not a scientist or an engineer but i'm very interested in medieval technology how did they do that you know how do you how do you transport an elephant from india to venice or something you know all that kind of stuff and they're very interesting questions you know you know how how did the ottomans manage to um drag their ships over the golden horn you know uh, yeah uh, and 
these are these are fascinating uh, en- practical engineering questions, and I think we underestimate the sheer practical skills of the people of the past. Something that we, I did forget to ask about is we mentioned him in the beginning. What happens to Lotus Lotus Notaros after the battle? Um, he is um, he's killed. Uh, he's captured. They kept him alive for a bit, and then they realized that he was. Perhaps a bit too significant figure. I think his wife and children survived, but there's cruelty here. The children are uh, taken off into the harem, and the same with this other man, George Francis, who ends up in a monastery with his wife. They get away, but his children are taken into the harem and die there. Um, so uh, Notaris is killed. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. This has been Vandalish Well, Today we have taken a look at the battle and the fall of Constantinople. We are available on social media, on Instagram, well, that age as well. And we are, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. We are also on YouTube, well, that age as well. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Thank you very much, Elan. It's been a pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.